So we'll begin this afternoon's exploration of uh, a little bit of an introduction to the paramis and then the take a little bit more in-depth look <clears throat> at the particular parami of generosity. So what are they? Paramis. What's a parami? Some of you might know, but many of you might not know. A parami is the, or the paramis are the accumulated forces of purity, we could say, within the heart, within the mind. The accumulated forces of purity within the heart and mind. Every moment that's clear, that's free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion, has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of our consciousness. And each of us, in our long evolutionary process, has accumulated many of these forces of purity within our own heart and mind. One of the root, uh, root words or roots of the word parami uh, conveys a sense of supreme quality. So paramita, the Sanskrit word, means going toward something. So going toward supreme quality, going toward perfection. Sometimes the word parami is translated as a perfection, the perfections. In the Theravada tradition, there are ten paramis, and I'll just list them. Dana, or generosity, I'll say them in English. Uh, Generosity, virtue or ethical behavior, renunciation, wisdom, energy effort, patience, truthfulness, resolve, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. The development and the growth and the maturation of these perfections, these forces uh, of the mind and the heart, help to counter the forces that cause uh, human beings such great suffering. Everything occurs or everything happens because of particular causes and conditions. Nothing occurs randomly, nothing occurs accidentally. The practices that lead towards the developing of these qualities in our lives and in our mind and heart aren't to be undervalued. They're very important. Our practice itself in its process, is the practice and the process of purification. <clears throat> the, practice, uh, the path of practice leads the, it's leading us towards liberation. This samatha, concentration practice, vipassana practice, metta practice, and other uh, practices in the Buddha Dhamma. And we could say that all of this is called the path of purification. And so the development of the paramis organically, naturally, occurs within the context of all of these practices. In light of moving from an intensive retreat setting out into the larger world and uh, considering that in our everyday life here in retreat, uh, in this intensive retreat setting, 
uh, and in our everyday life outside of a retreat setting, bringing the paramis more and more to the forefront of one's uh, daily life can be uh, very helpful, fruitful, and can be a very potent aspect of our practice. The paramis, of course, uh, can be practiced, uh, are to be practiced, really, uh, and developed for our own liberation, but also for the benefit of our family, friends, and community, and for the benefit of the world. Traditionally, the practice, the development, and the gaining of the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble person. So, this afternoon, looking a bit into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this very beautiful, essential quality of the heart and mind, and beginning with a story. Some years ago, when I was living here, at the Insight Meditation Society, there were times when I would uh, go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda Temple, uh, which isn't very far from here, to pay a visit to my friend, the Venerable Maha Gosananda. Some of you may know of him. Uh, His name translates as Maha. Maha means great, and Gosananda means sound of bliss. And he was fondly usually called Maha. He was from Cambodia and is considered to be the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. And he's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long uh, step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside and the villages and the refugee camps during the Vietnam War. He died a number of years ago at approximately the age of 94. He'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Gosananda was really an incredible, glowing, and energetically light human being. He felt like one of the purest and lightest uh, beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, so rare, really. A being with a really, truly unfettered and pure heart and mind. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and joy of teaching a three-day retreat with him up in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, a very sweet and deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat uh, was to begin, I was taken into his quarters to say hello. Uh, uh, But we didn't really know each other very well, and we hadn't seen each other for at least a year. So I I didn't know if he'd remember me. Being such an old man, uh, he was pretty old at that time, there were things that he didn't remember. So I recalled to him the last time that we had met. And uh, I asked him if he remembered me. And he said, oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) 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 And I, I burst out laughing, just like you did, and I did again. And I said, it must be quite a nose. And he said, he very directly and very sweetly said, it's a good nose. (laughs) 
During the three-month retreat that I was teaching here at IMS, not very long after that Colorado retreat with Venerable Maha Gosananda, I visited um, a Venerable Gosananda at the Cambodian Peace Temple. I felt like I was going to see my Dhamma grandpa, who, in fact, used to call me Mum. And at one point I asked him uh, why he called me Mum. Uh, when in fact he was so much older than me. And he responded by saying, we have all been each other's mothers at some point, so your mom. So that day when I went to visit him, it was a little break I had, a day where I could go away from teaching the three-month retreat. Mom and Grandpa sat together drinking tea and laughed a little bit and talked a little bit about the history of his life I talked about the three-month retreat that I was teaching and how everyone was so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked uh, Buddha Dhamma, which was uh, Maha's favorite topic. Being with Venerable Maha Gosananda was always a very precious gift that he opened and... uh, that opened and lightened the heart, opened and lightened the mind. A gift he selflessly offered simply through his being or more accurately a gift that he offered in just simply being I found it quite amazing and surprising when I was with him and afterwards my heart felt like it it filled up my whole body my whole being and then on outward And it was an experience that would always continue, continue on for a while um, beyond our time together. That day when I left the Cambodian temple, to my total surprise, the two monks and one of the nuns that lived there with Maha filled the back seat of my car with large bags of Thai rice and big tins of jasmine tea and uh, sacks of sugar for me to take back for all of the three-month yogis. They wanted to offer gifts of support because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. So, exploring generosity, this quality really holding a special place and an opportunity for all of us in our formal practice and in our life as our practice. Particularly now as you'll soon be taking yourselves uh, and taking your practice out of intensive intensive retreat setting and into the world of your daily life. I have to see how much time I have. (laughs) Okay. Um, And of course, uh, one of the most profound acts of generosity occurred uh, 2,600 years ago or so when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation, liberation from suffering. And it's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great 
compassion that we're sitting here together right now, this afternoon. So, one more story. Um, About, oh, now it's maybe 28, 30 years ago, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher called Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year, he would come to the area in Michigan where I lived to teach us. One year I invited him to come and to stay at my house. Um, It was a very small uh, five-room log home uh, out in the Michigan woods. And at that point, uh, just one of my sons and I were living there. The summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came and an old, uh, well-used, smallish car pulled up into the driveway. Wallace was the first one to get out. He was quite a big man, about six foot three or four, and very big-boned, and he looked even bigger with his cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat. And then it was like one of those cars in uh, in the circus that pulls up into the center ring, and the doors open, and people just keep pouring out. It's kind of like that. And we're amazed when we see that in the circus, how many people can fit into such a small car. Well, it was kind of the same that afternoon, or that morning when they arrived. As we watched, uh, seven people emerged from this little tiny car. (laughs) Wallace's helpers and some members of his family. And it turned out that there were 11 people uh, living in our house during this 10-day retreat. It was a a 10-day period of a retreat. And I thought, oh, how will we all sleep in this tiny house? Well, the space just seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere. Food arrived. People would drop by in the afternoon to meet with and to listen to Wallace as he very generously shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the... uh, sweat lodge that was down the road at the Ecology Center until about 12.30 a.m. And then it was time for a big dinner because we weren't uh, supposed to be taking any meals at all through the afternoon and evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. During these 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences and many of my habits how I use the spaces of my house, my usual schedule, the rhythms of my life, food preferences, and lots of other preferences. Wallace and one one of the other members of his family were chain smokers in my no-smoking house. (laughs) People slept, as I mentioned, all over the house. And the day began late in the morning, with the late-night sweat lodge ceremonies happening until uh, our, uh, having our, and then having our 1 a.m. dinner. And each afternoon, the house was filled with 15 or 20 people coming by to listen as Wallace, as I said, share, very generously shared his earth wisdom teachings in a casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats And there would be bowls of food at the door and uh, dishes and bowls of food left on the kitchen counter. 
And often a friend and I would cook up something at 12 or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. The last night of this 10 days, Wallace and his friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. And so we all sat together in a circle. And each one of us was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship to our 10 days together. And then they offered my son and I uh, beautiful treasures that they had brought with them in gratitude for us sharing our space, our time, and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke and he said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough abundance. If one shares one's space, time, and energy, it's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. If one shares from the heart, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance, he said. The next morning, late morning, when everyone left, uh, in seeing them off, um, my son and I stood outside, watched them all get back into the old car. It's kind of like a movie playing backwards. And then the two of us walked back into the house um, and stood there kind of in amazement. The seeming seeming great expanse of our little tiny house, uh, holding all of the people, holding all of the activity, all of that energy for all of those days, it seemed to have shrunk. And yet somehow, internally, both of us felt tremendously expanded. The very powerful medicine of generosity. And so closing this exploration of this parami of generosity, uh, I'm going to read something from the astronaut Russell Swikart. I don't know if he's still alive, but he wrote this uh, quite a while ago. He was one of the early explorers in space. And he wrote this uh, not too long after coming back from uh, an extensive exploration in space. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there. There are no frames, there are no boundaries. You're really out there, floating, going 25,000 miles an hour, ripping through space a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery, with what you're seeing, and the speed with which you know you're going. The contrast, the mix of those two things, really comes through. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this? This fantastic experience? 
Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience here that other people cannot have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing that you've done that deserves that, that's earned that. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for human beings. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all of those people down there. They're like you. They are you. And somehow you represent them when you're up there, a sensing element, that point out on the end. And that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. You're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. It tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. And so that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet, and you and all those other life forms on that planet, because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference, and it's so precious. So now turning the afternoon over to these two people sitting right here. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.